You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my all-time favorite guests back on the show with me today, Peter Swanson. Uh, I, I think this is our like fifth year running uh, to to do a show together. Uh, yeah, Peter has and, been a number of them, yeah, yeah. It's 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 been quite a few. Uh, Peter's brand new book uh, that when you're hearing this show will be available everywhere. It's called Nine Lives. And, you know, every year you just up the ante and you ratchet up the tension. Uh, and, and I just love it even more. Um, Nine Lives, I know it's only March, one of my all-time favorite books of the year. I know it's going to make my, uh, you know, my top ten books of the year uh, when this year is over. Because it's one of those stories that just hangs with you when you finish it. And and that's that's what we all want from a book, right? Uh, characters and and uh, and a plot that just sticks with us when it's over with and you can't stop thinking about it. Anyway, all of that said, welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for having me once again. Absolutely. Uh, Peter, th- is this your eighth book? It is. Uh, That's... Confu- confusingly called Nine Lives. And then, my, um, <laughs> and then I did have a book called Eight Perfect Murders, and that was my seventh book. So I'm slightly off. I should have um, had another book before this, too. But yes, it's my eighth eighth book which is kind of stunning to me that uh that aspect of it didn't even dawn on me until you just said that but yes eight perfect murders was your seventh book and yeah and nine lives is your eighth that's so funny um you know when when i got the book uh you know i got an, an arc from your publisher and i, I was like oh and a new peter swanson book this is going to be fun and it it blows my mind each time that a that a new book of yours comes out that they're all so different, um, yet there's still this this uh, this thread that runs through all of your stories, and and I've I've struggled to kind of put my finger on it, but it's evident that you are a lover of the genre. You really love mystery stories. Where does that come from? Um, I mean, it just comes from from really just being a, an avid reader as a kid. Um, and falling in love with mystery stories really young. Um, I mean, I, I think I went down the usual um, route, which is, I think, um, Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Um, and maybe before then, even like Encyclopedia Brown, or even before that, maybe um, uh, picture books like Mercer Mirror. I was like sort of um, slightly creepy stuff. So monsters <laughs> and things like that and dark images and um and then, yeah, and then, and then I hit the detective stuff that you first get when you're, you know, a young reader, and I love that stuff. And then, um, and then started reading the adult stuff that um, that my parents had around the house quite young, and I, you know, I love that. So even though I, I will read, I, I do read outside of the genre, not not that much. I I tend to pick up mysteries when I'm picking out my next book, but you know I read some literary stuff. I read poetry, um, but 
but but yeah, I just never I you know, I've always loved it. Um and I particularly love going back and reading um you know, the great sort of mid-century crime novels, the golden age stuff from from England and then and I like the mid-century American stuff too, some of the hard-boiled stuff and um those great paperbacks when they were, you know, all those writers cranking out paperbacks in the 50s and 60s. I love all that stuff. While neither one of us uh, are psychologists, um, I, I do like to kind of explore uh, some of the armchair psychology that, uh, you know, that that kind of goes along with with why we resonate with certain genres. Uh, and, uh, you know, mystery stories are consistently um, some of the hottest sellers. Uh, it's just something that we we. I think the vast majority of us love a good mystery and, uh, and and love to read in the genre. Why do you think these kinds of stories just resonate with readers so deeply? Yeah, I mean, there's I I have um, I'm interested in that subject myself, and I've so I know other people's sort of opinions on that, and I you know I don't have a definitive answer, but I I do know that. Um, some of it is um, that there is something actually comforting about a crime story. Um, if you think of a traditional crime story, we'll go, you know, to a sort of an Agatha Christie type thing where you have a town that is upset. Um, a moral order is upset by a murder, usually in the very beginning. And yeah. it's almost like evil has descended upon the town. And then along comes a figure who is either a detective or could be a um, smart old lady like Miss Marple, or could be anyone really, could be a priest. But it, they tend to be sort of almost um, like a religious figure in that they return the, um, they they find out the wrongdoer, and they return the town to its sort of original state. So there's something comforting about that when it, when the um, crime is solved. I don't think it's just that though, because I think. So, for instance, uh, Nine Lives is sort of inspired by um, what I think of Agatha Christie's best book, um, and then there were none. And that is a book where no um, no redeeming figure comes along and <laughs> sets the world to rights. So, why is that book um, so popular? So, I think um, so. I think there's a lesser, a less um, fancy version of the psychology, and some of that is. Um, when we read about dark things happening to other people, um, they're not happening to us. I mean, we're we're hopefully home, tucked up in our chair, um, enjoying a creepy story, but we're in the safety of our home. So maybe, and there and there's a fascination to the dark side. So it kind of um, it's it's a way to let us into that that part of the world without uh, us being in immediate danger. So I think um, there's a comfort in that as well. You, several of your books have been um, uh, have have sort of tipped the hat to um, uh, a, a a a standard of the genre, um, if you will. Um, and in Nine Lives, I, I think it's uh, fascinating that you know you were you were thinking of that Agatha Christie story in the beginning. Do do stories begin that way for you a lot of the time? Is are you thinking about? You know the way someone has done done something in the past, and and you start thinking about. Mm, I wonder if I could take this genre trope or, or or whatever, and and you know maybe turn it on its head or something. Or is there a 
a character that walks onto the stage of your mind or like, what is, what's that kernel of inspiration usually like for you? Yeah. I mean, it comes from different places, but I mean, I, I think a good, a way to think about it is, is I am coming at my writing career as um, being heavily inspired by other crime novels and looking to sort of do my own versions of them. Um, <clears throat> it makes sense because I don't, you know, for instance, some some people who write crime novels were um, in, involved involved in you know um, the field of detection. They might be an ex police officer or something, and then they would come at it very differently. Yeah. Or they might be a journalist um, who who was on the crime beat. Um, I think sort of Michael Connelly comes from that. Um, you know, who you might be pulling them from actual like real crimes that are happening. I don't have any connection with that world. I don't necessarily want any connection with that world. So sort of my ideas do, do tend to come from from books that I love um, for something like Nine Lives. I, I always wanted to do the type of story where a group of strangers are gathered and then get killed off one by one. And I think what always held me back was that it was, you know, where are you going to put these strangers? If you put them on an island, that's been done. If you put them in a snowbound, snowbound hotel, that's been done. If you um, put them on a train, that's been done. I mean, they're, they're all done by Erica Christie. But there was there was something sort of um, creaky about that. Um, not that it couldn't be done well, but I was always held back a little bit when I was thinking about this genre. And then I came up with this idea of what if they just received a list? They weren't put anywhere. But essentially, when they receive this list, it's, it marks them for death. And it kind of, in a way, puts them on this um, figurative island where, um, you know, someone's don't know who so as soon as i had that idea it kind of cracked um for me and i was like oh that's a story i kind of want to tell and then you know it's just months and months of sort of daydreaming about it and um imagining what the story might be like before i eventually you know decide to sit down and try and write it and and the fact that that uh we live in the 21st century um kind of closes the 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 scope of uh of of reality because you can um have a list of people and get some of the same effects as people being in close proximity because we we do have ways that connect us as a society now and and that 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 brings a whole other aspect to the story that that you can have these seemingly completely unrelated people but still have ways to kind of close those gaps well, and one of the one of the early things that happens is, you know, for for the the nine strangers that reach receive the list, some of them don't even really pay attention to it. Some of them right. become quite obsessed with it. But but one one of the things that they sort of all seem to do is Google the names, of course, right, um, to try and find out who these other people are and find out what their connection is. And there is a connection between them. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a couple different ways to go with these golden age plots. Um, and locked room mysteries and things like that is, you know, you either got to set it in the past or you got to find a way to do it in the um, present and um, sort of embrace the technology because, um, you know, it's tricky. It, it does change things that, um, you know, people now have cell phones. So when they're isolated, you're never that isolated. And there's only so many times in a novel you can put someone out of cell phone range before it begins to look like you're, it's just a cop-out. So I think the way to do it is to sort of say, um, 
what I was interested in this one, I mean, you always think in these in these stories that, you know, if you're trapped on an island with a killer, all you have to do is get off the island and then you'll be safe. In this story, there's this sort of, you know, this killer that seems almost supernatural in, in the ability to off these people. Um, so there is no escape. I mean, you have all the technology in the world. You even have police protection and it might not be enough. So I kind of like that idea, too. Um, but yeah, you know, and someone out there, it's, I don't think it's going to be me, is is going to write maybe a really good mystery thriller that um, has, you know, the COVID crisis in Zoom and all the sort of interactions people are now making online. I mean, I think of, you know, Zoom, there could be, you know, something in someone's background behind them on a Zoom call that right. gives something away. I mean, you know, I think, I think you either got to embrace it um, or... Um, or the other thing is, you know, set it back before 1980 because that, <laughs> that, you know, I, and I, you know, there's no right answer. I mean, those are, but you know, we are, we are in a different time now and in the past hundred years, things have changed quite a bit. For sure. For sure. You, you mentioned a minute ago, Peter, what your, uh, the early process of a book is that you start daydreaming of, of ways that it could work. And, and, um, it sounds to me like that is a, a part of your pre-writing process um what does what does that kind of phase look like for you do you do you give yourself a certain amount of time in the year to start kind of ruminating on story ideas and and then what what does that look like when you actually start to you know to sit down and write do, it, it you know with eight books in have you kind of fallen into a uh, a sort of routine when it comes to the you know the the new story dreaming process I don't have a yearly routine. I know that other authors who are often on the the book a year might like like always write their novel from January to, you know, June or something. And then the yeah. rest of the year is like them thinking of the next idea plus doing book tours or whatever. Um I don't have that. I mean, I I write them at different times. Um but uh I'm always sort of ruminating on ideas. So it's just a matter of uh, you know, if I'm lucky, like right now, I'm my my next book is done, so I'm in pretty good shape to get you know my next one written in time. So I'm not worried about it. I mean, it all depends on where your deadline is. Um, but I always have sort of a number of ideas floating in my head, and I, I think of them as sort of in competition. Um, and it's not a forced competition. I just let it happen naturally, like eventually one will sort of emerge as the one that I'm thinking about the most. And then, you know, hopefully when, when things are going well, I, I, as I'm thinking about this idea, that's, it always starts as sort of a premise. So if it's simply, you know, like nine people get a list and then I'm like, oh, I wonder what those people are like. I wonder why someone would do this. And I just start having these imaginations. I don't write anything down. Um, <clears throat> I just let it happen. And then at some point, I've, I have enough in my head that I need to start writing it out. Um, doesn't mean I have the whole plot in my head. Um, sure. But yeah, but I mean, eventually one story idea will kind of push another story idea away. Um, and that's when I'm sort of ready to start writing. And, you know, I, you know, and I've had all sorts of things, you know, I've have I have a couple half novels that, you know, because I don't plot them out in advance. I've had some written half a book and, uh, kind of had a dead end or, you know, just didn't, I didn't know where to go from there. Um, it's the risk you take. Um, 
and that's okay. I mean, you know, again, it all depends on your deadline. Um, if I have a strong deadline, I have to push through, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's so, so that's how I do it. Um, I, I, you know, the important thing for me is to be excited when I'm writing it, that I'm excited about the story, that I'm not forcing it. And, um, hopefully my, my, um, theory behind that is that if I'm excited by the story, someone else will be as well. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. That reminds me of a, a video that I saw a while back with uh, fantasy author Brandon Sanderson, who uh, has has made a lot of news lately with his Kickstarter. Um, that that's neither here nor there, but he he um, he was doing some sort of conference, and he uh, said that you know we all think of stories that that come out and they have a a certain history, but what about the stories that those stories that are written? Uh, what about the stories that get pushed out of the way that that may never see the light of day because this one won out? Uh, and and when you start talking about how there's sort of a, a competition of story ideas that happen, do you ever think of of the things that that didn't come to pass because <laughs> nine lives won out, or you know do 
Uh, or do you ever go back and revisit some of those ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think about it all the time because sometimes I live with these ideas for a while and then they just disappear. I mean, I have stuff pretty heavily plotted out in my mind. And, you know, and, and again, I have those orphaned novels. Um, and I will come back. I mean, weirdly, Nine Lives... Uh, um, Nine Lives got orphaned at one point, actually. Um, Nine Lives was not a one of those books that I just started and three months later I had a draft and then sent it to my agent and it was going to be my next book. Like at one point um, I started it and um, you know what happened when it, when, when it went wrong for me was um, there's uh, one of the, one of the people on the list is an FBI agent and she so she starts using the resources of the fbi to investigate you know her own mystery yeah um and at one point in the story i just that the whole thing started tilting towards the fbi and it's not my type of story i you know i was it became very much a procedural whereas i wanted to write more about these people and what it feels like to be marked for death um <clears throat> but when i returned to it and then I sort of had an idea of how to return to it and return it to that type of story. And I went back and did that. Um, but I initially wrote it as a much shorter novel, in fact, closer to a novella. I wrote it very fast um, and then sent it to my agent. And he, my agent sort of said, oh, I think there's enough here. I can see, here, you know, places where you could um, expand and we could make this into a novel. So I started thinking about that and got excited about it again. Again, it's like about excitement. So I was like, oh, I could add this or I could add this character or I could have more stuff happening with this person. Um, and as soon as all that um, came in, you know, so it was not a this book was around for a while and, and both on the paper and in my head. Um, but, yeah, I do. I, I do have. Um, I can think back right now. I mean, I won't say what they were. but I can think back to some some odd oddball novels that sort of intrigued me for a while. So one of the things that really intrigued me about Nine Lives, Peter, and, and this is one I didn't know anything about the story. I just knew that it's a new Peter Swanson book that's coming out this spring. And, you know, there's a certain excitement because I, I know you and I, I know what to expect from your mind. Um, but, you know, you, you open a book and you just start flipping through and you expect, um, because this is the way novels usually work, that, you know, we're going to have a chapter progression from, say, chapter one through chapter 50 or, or, or whatever. And and you expect the story to flow a certain way. Nine Lives, immediately, one of the first things I noticed when I didn't know anything about the story was that the chapters were broken down in this weird progression where yeah. there was like – chapter or you know uh almost like um section one and then you know several chapters and then you get section two and they start counting all over again at number one and and i was like what what is peter doing in this book and and then i had to know um and then you know when you start reading you understand how the story is broken up and why you decided to do that but um for all the people listening who have no idea what i'm talking about um Talk a little bit about why you decided to structure the book like that and, and what that means. Well, we got the the parts. I mean, if they go backwards, so the first part is, is titled nine. And then as soon as I right. came up with that, um, so so we're whittling down the list. Um, 
picture um i mean i think i had a working title a working title for this book was um what's the um oh it just went out of my head what's the name what's the game where the chairs get removed uh the musical chairs musical chairs yeah, yeah. um you know so so this is and, and i kind of love this um this is what i wanted to evoke and again it's the the classic agatha christie type story I love these stories where people get start getting knocked off one by one because there's um, there's a lot of little suspenseful things that don't necessarily relate to the killer. So there's always the the mystery of who the killer is. Is the killer one of them? And why is the killer doing this? So th there's that mystery. But then there's this whole other mystery that I think if you like the genre or in, or in movies or, or books, which is who's going to go next? Like, who's the first victim? Who's the second victim? Um, I think we've all played that game in sort of slasher flicks. And in fact, it's become a thing like, um, you know, we all know what a final girl is now, the, the survivor of the story. Um, we kind of know who the early uh, victim is going to be. It's, they're quick to identify. I mean, we these are tropes. So if there's the, the drunken fool at the beginning of the of the slasher flick they're they're going to go early so i always um so i tried really hard in this book to um to kind of try and mess up the way people might go so you know i tried to like make it look like some of them might last longer than they do and some of them might have gone earlier so i had a lot of fun with this notion that as you read it's each part of the book is is counting down um the the people on the list it's also my version of um you know the figurines on the table and 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 then there were none that keep disappearing so right. it's a it's a visual thing for that but yeah i came up with that early that to to number the uh the parts like that and it was it was a lot of fun so one of the hallmarks of a peter swanson book is that uh you do character very very well and you have a way of endearing characters to the reader pretty early on and you identify some way for us to connect with uh with a character and and they are uh, by no means all perfect characters there there no. are plenty of flaws and, and there are ways to that they're, they're three-dimensional characters and but you still find a way um to make me care about these characters flaws and all um with a with a story like nine lives um it would seem like there's a there's a a plot device that that is your first and foremost um concern is, is you know going through the plot device that makes up the book um yet um you still find ways to uh to make us really care about these characters and and um so f the first part of that question would be how do you, how do you cast the book with with these different characters and you you alluded to a little bit of it just a minute ago um but the other side of that is as i was reading and i really wanted to love a character or wanted to know more about him you just kill him <laughs> and i was like wow <laughs> peter is not scared to to kill off somebody that he just made me love you know two pages ago um talk about casting the the story with these characters you know, it's funny. I, I again, like when I was talking about how this sort of story came about, 
there wasn't this moment where I was like, this is my next book and I'm going to write this novel. It was like, oh, I have this sort of quirky idea and let me throw it together and see what happens. Maybe it'll be a novella. Maybe I can write this quite fast. Um, You know, so when I came at it, it was kind of funny. You know, I almost, I didn't give it a ton of thought, these characters. I, I knew that they had to have, I knew what they had in common a little bit. So I, I, I had some, some guidelines about who they might be. Um, but other than that, I wanted them to be random, um, you know, living in different parts of the country, pretty random people, some people that I don't normally, you know, write about. And I almost just came up with them really fast. I was like, okay, oh, there'll be this person. Um, you know, there'll be a guy who, you know, a, a sort of, um, singer songwriter guy in Austin, Texas. I've never written about him. They came really fast. Um, and then that was really fun to, and, and they kind of stuck around. Like I didn't, I didn't replace, I think there was sort of one person that I chose not to write about, but in, in general, like I just kind of picked them almost the way, almost randomly, like, and that was kind of good. And then I was stuck with them. And, um, and then it's just fun to have a character and think about, you know, I always do think about empathy even for all my characters, you know, what were they like as kids? Um, what do they want right now? Are they happy people? Are they unhappy? Um, and the thing about killing them off, and I did feel a little sad about that in some cases, but I think, you know, if there's, I hope it's not, I mean, it's not, I, I didn't write a necessarily philosophical um, murder mystery novel, but there is a sense underneath that what's happening these characters is going to happen to everyone, which is we're all being stalked by death. So I was kind of thinking about where are they in their life when they die? And um, some of them are, some of them are, things are getting worse and some of them things are getting better. And um, I did think about that philosophy of, you know, what, um, what kind of life do you want to live before you die? And so, you know, I had some of them, their lives were getting better and then they suddenly die and um but maybe that's a good thing right maybe that's how we should all go out so i was trying to think of it that way um in terms of their deaths peter when you and i met um i think we were talking about your book all the beautiful lies uh at the time which which would have been five books ago um and and i love that book and that book stands out to me as when i think of you and your work, that's one of the first things that comes to mind. And probably because that's when I was, um, when I was introduced to your work, uh, even though I had the kind worth killing, uh, I think on my Kindle and I just hadn't gotten around to reading it yet. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I read the kind worth killing right after all the beautiful lies. And, and I love that story and it, it really, um, it really pulled the rug out from under me and which is, you know, what you, what you want to happen. Um, looking back over your body of work, you know, nine lives now, and then, you know, back to every value break and eight perfect murders and on and on back to the girl with a clock for a heart. Um, when you look back over your writing career now, eight books in, you've established yourself in the genre. People anticipate when a new Peter Swanson book is coming out. Um, how do you look back on your career and do you look back on that first book and do, do you ever think, wow, if, if I knew then what I knew now, I might've done this differently. Or do you, do you 
you know, not allow yourself to do that. And each work stands, you know, as a representation of, of who I was at the time. And, um, and, and not to say anything negative about that first book, cause it's an amazing book, but, you know, with the benefit of eight books published now, you know, there, there's a, a natural growth that happens with, with, with any endeavor. How do you look back over your writing career? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think there are some things that like, if I went back, I would do that story differently or, um, but, but I don't, but I don't think that way. I mean, I basically, I think, um, you, you know, while that might not be, I, I don't think my first book is, is a favorite of mine, but, but it is a favorite of mine in the sense that it was my first book. Right. Um, you know, that was the, when, you know, I first got a call that I was going to get published. It was about that book. And, um, you know, and that was the book that actually got me a, an agent and a publishing deal. So that will always, you know, that happened for its reason. And, um, and, and then generally I just let them go. I mean, I think that that is my, I, I don't, I don't think a lot about my books after, after they're out in the world. Um, and, and so I, uh, I, you know, I tend to, you know, I'm excited about something new. So, which is another idea. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. Um, but it is, I think one of the cool things when you first come, when you come out with your first book, you're like presenting yourself to the world. You're like, this is my book. And you, there's this pressure. You feel like everyone's got to love it or something. There is something nice about having a number of books out there because, um, you know, some, every book has maybe some detractors and some fans. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I have some, um, fans who quite like my books who who really dislike all the beautiful lies um i think because of some of the subject matter um and that's fine you know that's like yeah. uh, that's totally fine with me it didn't work for them but but they love these other books and then i have a bunch of people i mean y- you included um a couple of people who are like yeah you know i, I like all your books so the, the one that i really really love is all the beautiful lies. And I'm always surprised because I think they're going to say, <laughs> I think they're going to say the kind worth killing, which is what most people say, or now uh, perfect murders is people say that too. So, you know, I, it's kind of nice because, um, I have, you know, not everyone reacts differently to your books. It's not, um, you know, I'm putting them out there. I'm not, you know, trying, you can't, you can't get everyone with every book. Right. Right. Um, so, and so there's something nice about that. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you had finished book nine uh, already. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about it? I know we're a year away from seeing it, but um, no, maybe I'm, what was I'm, your inspiration? Um, yeah, well, it's my, it's my first, uh, I'm calling it a semi-sequel. Um, it, it follows up on the kind worth killing um, by bringing in two, two of those characters from that book, um, the detective Henry Kemble and... Um, Lily Kentner both return. Um, but then it also introduces a new story, two new characters, Joan and Richard, who meet, meet in high school, and then all these characters sort of converge. Um, so so it is, a, in a way, a sequel, but um, but with a new story, but a lot more Lily in it. So that's the first time I've ever done that. Um, I've been asked about that a lot, and uh, I just finally, I'd always been thinking, like, oh, I, I would like to write some kind of sequel, and then suddenly I had the idea for it. Um, 
that worked. Um, so I was excited to get back to that, and that'll be out in a year. So, yeah, I th it, I think it's um, we don't have an official title, um, but I think it might be the follow-up title, which is um, the kind worth saving, mm. which I like. Yeah, you, and you just gave me a year of sleepless nights uh, right. wondering about that book. So you, yeah. you can rest easy knowing that. Yeah, now. I like that. <laughs> Nine Lives, when you're hearing this episode, is available everywhere now. Go grab it. Uh, you can either use the links in the show notes to grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, Peter, I've got to tell you, I love listening uh, to your audiobooks. There's, there's a different... Um, even if I've read, you know, a, a, a physical arc or an ebook arc, listening to the story is I, I get to experience it all over again. And um, what a, a great way uh, to experience these stories or go visit your local bookstore, support local books, and uh, you can grab all of Peter's books there as well. Um, Peter, if folks are just discovering you, God forbid, uh, at this point in your career, um, tell them where they can find you online and dig into all the great stuff you do. Probably the easiest thing to do is um, just go to my website, which is peter-swanson.com, and then that'll, you know, that'll have information, but it'll also link you to, um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter um, and Facebook as well. And we'll link up all those places to make it easy for folks to find you. Peter, uh, always a highlight of my year. Um, not only your new book, but getting to to chat with you and catch up. Um, we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Nine Lives. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you, Hank. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. On Walpurgis night, when the moon is high, hell's bells ring and witches must answer. They dapple their breasts with rendered fat of murdered babes, straddle their brooms and take to the sky, as the devil wills, to speed through dreamy midnight air to the summit of the Brockenberg, that haunted peak shrouded in swirling mists, where a glen of gnarled limbs and wan moonlight awaits to host their debauches and blasphemies. Now to the Brocken the witches ride, the stubble is gold and the corn is green, there shall the carnival sabbat be seen, and the devil shall come to preside. The accuser elopes from the bowels of hell, a sure-footed, goat-headed, many-horned beast with cloven hooves and a staff of bone. He perches upon the witch altar to brood in cerulean half-light, a winged silhouette with watchful red eyes. The witches gather and bow to their master, upon his charred rump give the shameful kiss, then imps beat the drum and a round dance begins. Lash yourselves into frenzy, hags. Pass the chalice of pure marrow broth. Whip the ground with your hair. Tread the sky with your feet. Dance with joined hands around Satan's cold fire. Then find out a nook of nettles and moss and lay with the rough-skinned beast of your choosing, suckling some rancid teat of desire. But hist! The cock crows, away, away, gather your tatters and broomsticks and wits, back to your huts, to your thresholds and hearths, and become once more, at the red break of day, 
the furtive adder in your neighbor's garden. The ghost host of the Salem Sorcery Tour, dazzling in his steampunk Victorian morning crepe, let the spell he'd woven trail through the twilight air like a hag across the moon, then chirped, Isn't that silly? And bowed, sweeping the wet grass with his satin-ribboned top hat. The tour group gave a polite round of applause. Nobody believes that stuff today, but the Puritans sure did. They took witches very seriously. If they went down in the morning and bought eggs and one was rotten, surely the devil had come in the night, gone boop, tee-hee-hee, then scampered off on his little hooves. And who's in league with the devil? Witches. We're taught that the Puritans were super nice and cute with little buckles on their hats, but it's not the case, folks. They were fanatics. Witch hunts don't happen in a healthy society. They hated kids. They hated women. They were crazy. And that craziness. He turned on the spot, casting a protective circle around the stone garden of the witch memorial. Got these people killed. 